I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. A nurse's deadly mistake during a routine procedure could set a dangerous precedent for all healthcare workers. But was this tragedy the result of criminal incompetence or the product of a systemic failure? This is the Redonda Vaught story. Hi, Megan. Hi, Amy. Megan, this might be one of our most suggested cases lately. Uh, Yes, I saw the incoming messages. I've been getting them as well. And I think most of our supporters or people on Instagram, people that are requesting this are individuals who are healthcare workers, and they're really concerned about the outcome of this case and what it can mean for their industry. Yes. Do you remember on our last Zoom with our patrons, we had a couple of people who are healthcare workers who discussed this, and they brought it up. And I think that was also how we really decided that this was an important case for us I, w- to I had actually already started writing it. Oh, But okay. it did give me a little bit more insight. Gotcha. And this is a very recent case. The trial was in late March, and the sentencing occurred just a couple of days ago. Right. Okay. Yes. And I know this case, but I don't know it inside out. Good. Well, that's what I'm here for, Megan. Yeah, no, <laughs> I'm ready. So we've been very busy lately, and finally, what we have been working so hard for so long is finally coming to a head. We can finally let the cat out of the bag. I know. I'm very excited. Beginning in June, everyone, we will be going weekly with Women in Crime, and it is thanks to your support, help, every contribution you've made that we are finally able to get here, and we are so excited about it. Oh, wow. We have a lot of work ahead of us, huh? (laughs) We're going to have a very busy summer, Amy. 
but in a very good way. Yes, there's no shortage of cases, so I'm excited to start working through my list a little quicker now. So once again, beginning in June, we will be going weekly. So mark your calendars. Before we get into today's episode, Megan, let's just take a moment to acknowledge some of our supporters. We have Jen Hawk, Jessica from Nashville, Tennessee, Laura, who gives a shout out to her hubby and bestie for convincing her to up her tier. Aww. Yes, I know. Uh, we have Kate. We have Sonnet Ireland. Becca Yemens, Joyce, Kimberly from Orlando, Florida. We have Lindsay O, who has been listening since episode one. Oh. And Megan, we have some other people. Yes, we have um, Jillian. We have Dolores from Portland, Oregon. Claire Hidalgo from Dallas, Texas. And Claire works with survivors of sex trafficking for the Lone Star Justice Alliance. We also have Amy, who has a sister named Meg. (laughs) Cute, right? (laughs) And we have Joni and Julia Smith. Other than becoming a patron, there are many ways you can support us. So please follow us wherever you listen to our podcast. That way you can get notified when we release new shows. You can also leave us a review, follow us on social media, or just share our episodes by telling a friend. Now let's turn to Redonda Vaught's story. Redonda Vaught was born January 24th, 1984 in Nashville, Tennessee. Redonda attended Western Kentucky University in 2012. She did very well. She excelled. She was on the dean's list and she earned her bachelor's in nursing and then obtained a certificate in leadership. In February of 2015, Redonda became licensed as a registered nurse. Mm -hmm. In late 2017, at the time of the event we are discussing, she was 36 years old, living in Bethpage, Tennessee. It's about 40 miles outside of Nashville. Mm -hmm. And she was living with her husband, working at Vanderbilt University Hospital. She was working at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, Mm -hmm. which is considered the most prestigious hospital in Tennessee and one of the most prestigious in the whole country. Wow. So she was working as a nurse in the neurology ICU department. She had worked there for about two years, and she was considered very good at her job with no disciplinary issues on file. On December 27, 2017, Redonda was working her normal nursing shift in the ICU. This day, she was what was considered a floater. So she was helping out wherever she was needed instead of having her own, I guess, caseload. Mm -hmm. One of the patients that she was asked to care for at this time was 75-year-old Charlene Murphy. Charlene was being treated for a subdural hematoma, which is a pool of blood between the brain and its outermost covering. While this can be serious, her particular case was actually not a medical emergency, Oh, which is good because it sounds really bad. But it was causing her to have headaches and loss of vision. But she seemed to be doing pretty well. She was alert. She was awake. And her condition was improving. And I read some reports that she was actually getting ready to be discharged. But first, they just wanted to monitor her and make sure everything was okay before going ahead to discharge her. So as such, she was ordered to receive a full body scan. In this situation, it was a PET scan, which is an imaging test that's similar to an MRI. Have you ever done one? You know, you go into this like large tube-like machine? Yeah, I have. Okay. I've had many. You have? That's because you're a hypochondria. (laughs) I am. So she was being prepped to be taken to the radiology department in the hospital. Now, she was reportedly very anxious as she was claustrophobic. Yeah. It's super anxiety-provoking if you're claustrophobic. So do you usually get a sedative in the times that you've gone? Uh, Well, I've only done it once, and I took my own sedative, yeah, (laughs) prescribed by a doctor. But yes, I did, because it really does cause you know, some anxiety. Yeah. So it's very common. So as such, a doctor ordered a sedative for Charlene. Specifically, it was a drug called Versed. 
Now, the generic name of Versed is midazolam. This is a benzodiazepine, which is a type of sedative medication often used to help alleviate anxiety. Mm -hmm. So nothing out of the ordinary here. Mm -hmm. Redondo was tasked with administering the medication, which consisted of removing the medication from a computerized medication cabinet. So this is also known as an ADC, which is an automated dispensing cabinet. This is just an automated system that allows medications to be stored and dispensed also, con- while you can, while being able to control and track the drug distribution. Mm-hmm. Now, these are very commonplace these days in hospital settings because right. they have many benefits, right? right? You have, for one, greater medication security. Mm-hmm. It's more efficient as far as like billing and inventory management, mm-hmm. improved access to medications, and I think most importantly, potential reductions in medication errors. Well, okay, yes. However, with all technology, you know, it comes with its risks as well. So... Redonda went to the cabinet intending to retrieve the drug Versed. She typed in VE uh-huh. and she did not see the drug. She tried a few times and she did not realize at this time that the drug was actually cataloged under its generic name. If you recall, that's midazolam. So rather than investigating this further, she selected and subsequently removed a drug by the name of Vecaronium. Now, this error would have severe repercussions. So how does a mistake like this happen, especially since there were several precautions in place to prevent things like this from happening? So as I understand it, I'm not a nurse, nor am I in the health field, but from what I read and from what I've been told, the protocol is that a drug is approved by a doctor and then it is placed in the system. Okay. A pharmacist then sends it up as soon as they approve it on their end, and that's when a nurse can remove and administer the drug. However, in the event of an emergency, a nurse has the ability to override the pharmacy's approval. Now, this would mean that a patient would get a medication quicker. This is a practice that has, of course, saved many lives. Because imagine a situation where somebody's maybe in some sort of distress and there's a medication in a cabinet. Mm -hmm. They don't have time to wait for the pharmacist to approve it. Mm -hmm. So nurses have the ability to override. Well, you said she selected this alternative medication. Was that an accident? Or did she she not know what the medication was? I'm just a little confused. Okay, so... By all accounts, it was an accident. Okay. But there were several warnings that Redonda overrode. So uh. again, this was commonplace at the time. This situation was not an emergency. Mm-hmm. However, nurses got into the habit. It's almost like alarm fatigue. Mm-hmm. A lot of times when they have to get routine medication, they get all these alerts, alerts, mm-hmm. alerts, warnings. And they kind of, the way it's been explained yes. to me is that they're used to just saying yes, yes, yes. Yep. So is it possible she, you know, took a shortcut if she was just on autopilot? Regardless, she bypassed at least five warnings, you know, these pop-ups right. saying, you know, that you're withdrawing a, par- a paralytic. Okay, got And it. she just, I guess, ignored it. There's also something to note here is that she did not recognize that Versed is a liquid, but Vecaronium is actually a powder that must be mixed into a liquid. So it had to be constituted. Yeah. There was also a red warning label on the actual lid of the medication. And you could see pictures of the medication online. Okay. So regardless of all these warnings, Redonda went down to radiology where the patient was waiting and she injected her with the mistaken drug. She then returned to the ICU, leaving Charlene in radiology to await her scan. Now, vecaronium, the drug that Redonda removed, was a paralytic, which is used to relax the muscles before general anesthesia, Mm -hmm. often for prepping people for surgery. Mm -hmm. This is used most often before people are being intubated to keep someone's body still. Tragically, Charlene was soon in respiratory distress, and by the time she was discovered, she was already brain dead. 
And this was within 20 minutes of the administration of the drug. You see, what happened was her diaphragm, the muscle that controls breathing, became paralyzed from the drug. So she could not breathe. And then, of course, the lack of oxygen caused her to become brain dead. Oh, my gosh. Now, Charlene was on life support. But two days later, her family made the tough decision to remove her. That's terrible. After the death of Charlene Murphy, Redonda was very forthcoming and very remorseful. She immediately admitted to wrongdoing. In fact, just when it happened, you know, someone had, I guess, you know, there was obviously um, a bunch of commotion Mm -hmm. and something clicked and she was like, oh my God, I did this. She somehow like things clicked to her and she she realized, yeah. Um, She was let go from Vanderbilt less than a week later on the grounds of not following medication procedures. Now, Mm -hmm. this is important to note. She was not let go on the ground of the death of a patient. It was because she didn't follow medical procedures. Okay. Redonda went on to work as a nurse at another nearby medical center but she wasn't caring directly for patients. Um, The position did require a license, however, which she did still hold at this time. Okay. It wasn't until February of 2019 when Redonda was arrested and charged with reckless homicide and gross neglect of an impaired adult in connection with the death of Charlene Murphy. Mm. So what happened between December of 2017 and the arrest in early 2019? Well, initially, the medication error was not even acknowledged in Charlene's autopsy. Her death was categorized as, quote, natural. Oh, gosh. However, several months later, Vanderbilt did put a corrective action plan in place in response to Charlene's death. Now, this was a 105-page plan which outlined new safeguards like removing becaronium from the override system and also retraining nurses and other medication administrators. In late 2018, an anonymous tip was called into the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, also known as CMS. Because of this anonymous tip, an investigation began. In other words, this patient died and everyone just thought it was natural causes. Then CMS gets an anonymous tip saying, oh, no, no, there's more to this story. Right. So an investigation starts. And CMS was not the only ones looking into this incident. There were also investigations by the Medicaid Fraud Control Unit Mm -hmm. and the Tennessee Bureau of Investigations. Okay. Not surprisingly, what followed was an interest by the Davidson County District Attorney General's Office. Okay. In early 2019, a grand jury was convened and returned indictments charging Redonda with one count of impaired adult abuse and one count of reckless homicide. As would be revealed, prosecutors built upon the findings of the CMS report. Mm. So had it not been for the CMS, that, this probably wouldn't have all happened as it did. Okay. As a result of the grand jury indictment, on February 4th, 2019, Redonda was arrested and booked into the Davidson County Jail on a $50,000 bond, which she was later able to post. She pled not guilty and awaited a trial date. Do we know what kind of time she was facing with these charges? We'll talk about the exact charges, but these are serious charges in which prison time is very likely. Okay. If convicted. Yeah, I mean, it sounds very serious. So meanwhile, you know, I said she pled not guilty and awaited a trial. Of course, COVID happened, so that's why things took a little longer. But in 2020, there was a proceeding before the Tennessee Board of Nursing where Redonda testified, admitting that she had allowed herself to become complacent and distracted while using the medication cabinet, took full responsibility, and said she did not double-check which drug she had withdrawn, although she had multiple opportunities. She also said, quote, I know the reason this patient is no longer here is because of me. There won't ever be a day that goes by that I do not think about what I did. You know, she was hysterical. She was clearly remorseful. She sounds like it. And taking full accountability. Full accountability. And it's my understanding that she didn't have a lawyer present 
at mm. the proceedings, but I believe that is commonplace, but I'm not so sure because it's not my area. Okay. As a result of this hearing, she was stripped of her license. Well, yeah. Although I want to point out, this was the same board that initially chose not to even investigate the death. Right. But now pressure is being yep. put on by outside entities. Mm -hmm. So the trial finally began a couple of months ago, March 21st, 2020. You know, we're talking over two years from her arrest, but COVID, you know, everything was taking a little longer. Everything. This case got a lot of media attention, especially a lot of interest among those in the healthcare field. Right. All eyes were on this case because this would have serious implications for nurses moving forward. And right. people were worried about what was going to happen. And this is where we started getting lots of requests to cover this case. And the central issue here, Amy, I'm assuming, is that the concern is that if you make a mistake in the course of your position, you'll be criminally prosecuted and punished by prison. Absolutely. And that's a slippery slope. It is, for sure. During the trial, the prosecutors portrayed Redonda as an irresponsible and uncaring nurse who ignored her training and abandoned her patients, likening her to, quote, driving with her eyes closed. The prosecution did say Redonda Vaught probably did not intend to kill Miss Murphy, but she made a knowing choice. I, I don't know. I guess they're saying she knowingly made a shortcut. Yes. But it was commonplace at the time. So it, well, well you know. Right. But it, they're, yeah. they're saying, of course, she didn't intend to do it, but her actions, she yeah. should have known better what yeah. she did. And we result. see convictions all the time for recklessness and, right. and negligence. Right. The prosecution also focused on the fact that the correct medication Versed was a liquid while Vecaronium was a powder. Mm -hmm. So she should have known that based on her training. Is it possible that she thought maybe the drugs came in? Different forms, who knows, but... Is it possible she doesn't know every drug, <laughs> yeah. too? I mean, she, you said she was a floater. She wasn't, mm -hmm. like, you know, specific yeah. to that area. So maybe she just wasn't familiar with the drugs. Yeah. Another focus was on the fact that she was training another nurse at the time of this incident. Mm. So, which which likely contributed to her disregard for clear warning signs. So you could look at this two ways. You know, having a trainee next to her, you think maybe she would be more on top of things because mm -hmm. she's training someone. Or maybe she was overburdened and distracted. Right. Lastly, the prosecution focused on Redonda's decision to leave Charlene because that is against protocol. In other words, mm. she she didn't stay with the patient after she administered the drug. Oh. So even if she did administer Versed, she would have the noticed. Proto the, well, no, I'm saying even if she did administer Versed, protocol was that you stay with a patient um, after a certain amount of time after you administer medication. Okay. So if she had stayed, then yes, of course she would have been able to possibly resuscitate the patient after noticing signs of respiratory distress. Okay. So she's violating, of, I think they pointed out, it was it was more than a dozen infractions. I see. I think that's quite serious, though, too. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so what did the defense have to say? Well, the defense argued that Redonda made an honest mistake mm -hmm. that did not constitute a crime and that she was simply the scapegoat for systemic problems related to medication cabinets at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Okay. Of course, this claim was countered by Vanderbilt staff, who said that the hospital did at one point have problems with the medication cabinets, but they were in fact resolved weeks before the incident. But that's just a side note. I also think the hospital is going to be on the defensive here for oh, sure. Of so. course, yeah. Okay. The defense also noted that there was considerable debate over whether Vecaronium was the actual cause of death for Charlene Murphy. And this is a big point. Okay. In fact, a Vanderbilt neurologist testified that it was, quote, in the realm of possibility that Murphy's death was caused entirely by her brain injury. It's a little far-fetched given the fact that it was a paralytic 
However, they could not verify how much of the drug she had actually received. And there was one expert who testified that a small dose may not have been fatal. Yeah, but in conjunction with a brain injury. And I mean, it seems, uh, I understand what you're saying. And I, obviously, I have like no authority in this yeah. area. But it seems, you know, likely that a paralytic would constrain her breathing. And I don't yeah. know if the brain injury would have had that same effect But I on guess her. legally speaking, if you look at cause of death, mm -hmm. if the cause of death was brain hemorrhage, then mm -hmm. we don't have a case, right. right? Yeah. So I think that okay. was, I think that was smart of the defense. Well, I think yeah, it's they had a, to do something. It's a long shot, but. Um, Redonda did not testify on her behalf. However, on the second day of the trial, the prosecutors played an audio recording of an interview she had with law enforcement in mm -hmm. which she admitted to the error and said that she had probably, quote, just killed a patient. I mean, this isn't that big of a deal because she never denied wrongdoing, but mm -hmm. it's powerful for a jury to hear oh, that. Oh, for sure. It's her own words, too, saying, I'm guilty. Yeah. Um, it also turned out two of the jurors were healthcare professionals. So, you know, what was the jury going to do here? It wasn't, the trial did not last very long. So the jury has to decide what they're going to do. Now, there were two healthcare professionals on the jury. That surprises me. Yeah, I thought so too. But if you notice, it used to be that working in the field of criminology, I would never be allowed to sit True. in a jury. But yeah. now with all of a sudden they want people that have inside knowledge, which I could see both sides of. Well, maybe way, they think with the inside knowledge, they could be more objective. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, there's, two, you know, you could look at it both ways. Okay. But I think many people thought this would work in Redonda's favor because, yeah, again, they would be sympathetic. What if it was them? very sympathetic? Right. After just three days of deliberation, however, Redonda was found guilty of gross neglect of an impaired adult and negligent homicide. Now, she was acquitted of reckless homicide. Negligent homicide is the lesser charge in Tennessee. So let's talk quickly about the difference. Okay. So negligent homicide applies to any action that results in a person's death. It's one of the least serious homicide charges that someone can be convicted of. This is different than reckless homicide. Now, reckless homicide, according to the Tennessee state statute, it really leaves the discretion up to the court because they don't define what reckless means. Oh, okay. Whereas negligent homicide can apply to any action that results in a person's death. That sounds very vague to me. I f How do you usually teach it? Because I know it's different on each on each state level. Yeah, when I teach it in class in general, reckless behavior is more serious because you're doing something that you know can result in someone's death, like driving a car mm -hmm. 100 miles yep. per hour or drinking and mm -hmm. driving. Whereas negligence is something that you sh probably, you know, m should have known better and something you probably failed to do. Yep. But it's usually the lesser of the charge. So it's the lesser of the charge here, too. Right. Okay. It's usually not, though, going ahead and, and doing something that you know you shouldn't be doing, per se. Yeah. Okay, so what would happen here? Well, let me tell you what she faced, and then we'll talk about what happens. Okay. So Redonda faces really, Redonda faced up to a decade in prison. The gross negligent charge could stretch from three to six years. Right. And then you have the criminally negligent charge, which could be up to six years. You know, it's ultimately up to the judge to determine whether the sentences will run concurrently or consecutively. As we usually see, you know, sentences are likely to run concurrently. Okay. However, you have to acknowledge that there is the potential for over a decade in prison. And so this is because she's convicted on two charges is what you're Correct. saying. Right. Yeah, yeah okay. because each charge is going to hold mm -hmm. a different max. Okay. So she's facing a max of 10 years in prison. Is that what you just said? Yep. Okay. I just wanted to clarify mm -hmm. that. What about Vanderbilt? A lot of critics fault Vanderbilt for this tragedy. Not surprisingly, Vanderbilt settled with the Murphy family for an undisclosed amount. Right. But you know what they also included? 
in order of silence. I was just going to yes. say that. Okay. No, I couldn't, it's late in the day and I couldn't think, but I was like, no talking, no talking. That's what I was thinking. But no disciplinary action taken against the hospital. And many argue that, first of all, they never took any accountability. So, you know, mm. their systems were being updated. Along with that, they were understaffed at this point. Remember, she was being a floater because that means yes. people were out. There was also some reports say there was no place to scan meds in radiology. And if there were, then maybe the mistake would have, that would have given another kind of safeguard or another okay. gate to go through. They also, Vanderbilt did not report the medication error to state or federal officials or any agencies. That seems like a cover up after the fact. Yeah. I mean, obviously, eventually they did because they were found out, but they didn't come forward with that information. Mm-hmm. And I think the main issue is that people feel that Redonda... This one nurse who's trying to do her best is taking the fall for this institution. So she has a lot of support from those in the medical community. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's a change.org petition mm-hmm. to grant clemency that has gained close to 200,000 signatures. And while people awaited the sentencing, she was getting a lot of support on change.org. There was a petition to grant clemency that gained close to 200,000 signatures. The petition stating that Redonda was honest with her mistake, she took the necessary steps of reporting the incident, and granting clemency for her mistake is absolutely what she deserves, because she is the only person in the situation who has been upfront and honest. Well, that's a good point, Which I think is valid. She never hid anything from anyone. No, no. And so how did the family feel about it? Yeah, I was going to ask you that. So after the verdict, they say their family is still traumatized over the death, but they are thankful for the district attorney's office that there was justice brought in court. However, um, they feel that they do not have closure and they said that they will never get over the reaction of the verdict. Well, what do you mean? Because they believe that people are using her death for personal gain. Who's using her death for personal gain? So a lot of people are saying that it has been politicized because people are saying that the prosecution we're going after Redonda and trying to make, you know, an example out of her for I political see. gain. Yeah. And I think the family's saying, if anyone's using this for a political gain or personal gain, mm-hmm. shame on them. Okay. The medical community, they've been watching this case closely and they will continue, I'm sure, throughout all the appeals as well. Because there is really a sense of disbelief and anxiety for what may be to come for nurses around the country. I'm going to assume that most of the medical community is with her. Absolutely. I mean, after the verdict, the American Nurse Association issued a statement expressing concern, saying that it sets a dangerous precedent of criminalizing the honest reporting of mistakes. And some medical errors, they say, are just, quote, inevitable. And there are more effective and just mechanisms to address them than criminal prosecution. You know, many supporters, and I would agree with this, is that the nurse, the nursing profession, especially since COVID, is extremely short-staffed, strained, facing all these pressures. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this ruling is going to have a lasting negative impact on their profession. So regarding the idea that medical errors are inevitable, which they are, right, you can't control for all, you know, people are going to well, make we're mistakes. Human. We're, we're human. human. Exactly. Yeah, we make mistakes. Have you ever heard about the July effect? Nope. Something I learned when researching this case. So it's the name for the supposed increase in medical and surgical errors that occurs at hospitals correlated to the time of year when med school graduates begin their new residencies. Oh, I see. So Higher incidence yeah. with more inexperienced yeah, healthcare it's, it's workers. new doctors making their first mistakes. It's not if someone's going to make a mistake, it's when are they going to make a mistake. Every single person in every single career makes mistakes. But how serious is the mistake and what are the impacts? And I, I'm a little mixed on this case because I do see that she made a series of mistakes that were mm-hmm. very negligent, in my opinion, and, and probably 
She really should have known better. I don't know that handling it in the criminal courts is really the right precedent. And I wouldn't want, you know, to scare people away from the healthcare field. But I am concerned about how many, you know, safeguards there were and and why she went through all of them, I guess, is my only concern. I just want to highlight how often medical errors actually are, because I think that's important to put it into perspective. Yeah, for sure. So according to the National Academy of Medicine... At least 98,000 people die each year due to medical errors. Oh, wow. I would have known that number was so high. Right? So what are we going to do? Prosecute all those medical professionals who make mistakes? I mean, this this is where it gets a little difficult because medical errors historically have been handled by professional licensing boards or civil courts with criminal prosecutions being very rare. Now, medical malpractice is a civil issue, one that a victim typically initiates on their own behalf. Mm Mm-hmm. There are some cases for very severe misconduct Mm -hmm. that the party responsible could face charges for criminal negligence, but most cases of malpractice do not rise to the level of criminal charges. Yeah. For criminal charges, the state typically, we know that every state has differences, but typically the state must prove that the doctor's conduct was, number one, extremely egregious, and number two, that it must satisfy the criminal burden of proof. Okay. Case. Yeah. Do you know of a really famous example of a doctor who was held criminally liable in a medical quote mistake? Not Dr. Kevorkian, was it? No. You're gonna once I say it, you're gonna be like, Duh. wait. Have you listened to Doctor Death? Oh my goodness! <laughs> of course, of course. So February, Doctor Dunst. Yes, February Dunch. 2017, a Dallas neurosurgeon, Christopher yes, Dunch, Dunch, also right. known as Doctor Death. He was convicted of five felony counts of aggravated assault of serious bodily injury. And guess what his sentence was? Did he get life? He got life in prison. But his was very serious. I I mean, he operated on 38 patients, leaving 31 of them paralyzed, seriously injured, or dead from surgical complications. And that was only over the span of two years. And I'd also like to point out that he was also using narcotics while he was performing surgeries. And there were a whole host of other... His behavior was egregious. And I think his prosecution is appropriate. So obviously we cannot put him and Redonda in the same camp. No, we should well we shouldn't ever throw no. you know the net around everyone because they're not in the same camp. And there was also I don't know if you heard about the case in early 2018 about the doctor who was sentenced to 20 years because he was charged for his role in the overdose death of two patients as negligent homicide because no. he was giving them drugs. Okay, illegal. He was giving them illegal drugs. <laughs> yes. I mean uh, appropriate. That's what I'm so saying. Too. Some of these are appropriate. You know, I'm talking about prescribing drugs such as methadone and oxycodone. And I mean, these are people that should be, you know. There's a clearer line for them, I guess. Clear. So I think the big question here, Megan, is will people own up to their own mistakes if they risk prosecution? I mean, this could lead to cover-ups and ultimately more patient deaths. Have you ever heard of this idea of a just culture? No. So it's an approach, and this was told to us by one of our nurse patrons, Um, It's an approach to managing risks at hospitals. So it's a balance of responsibilities between organizations and individuals. And the goal is to foster a culture of trust with the primary goal being patient safety. So basically, a just culture is a safe place for nurses and doctors to come forward if they make a mistake without having to fear repercussion. And the mistake is not as long as it wasn't purposeful, the mistake is not blamed on the individual. Mm-hmm. It's blamed on the culture. That there's something oh. that we did wrong as an institution that we didn't support you or train you enough that led to this error. Oh, I like that. It's, it's like brilliant. I like that it's everyone taking, you know, some accountability. Exactly. And 
you know, making others feel comfortable. It'll, like the finger pointing would be less. I don't know what the word is though that I'm looking for. It's it feels like the gr- the group is more solidar. There's solidarity there. Yes, and if you think about it, if you're the boss and you hire someone, it's your job to train that person, right? Mm-hmm. So you hired me. Let's say I did something. Let's say I abused someone in the classroom. Part of the blame would be on you as my boss for not teaching me how to act in a classroom. That's an extreme example. But the point is that I think they're saying that there's accountability along the chain of command. Yeah, they're not throwing out a sacrificial lamb. Yes. And that's exactly what people feel like Redonda is. Yeah. So I think I can that, see that, you know, when you have hospitals that have a culture of openness, then we see lower mortality rates among yeah. patients and just a happier work environment, you know, for all people. I've actually heard of a study where they looked into hospitals that had low mortality rates, Mm -hmm. and they found that these hospitals also had the highest reported rates of errors. Okay. So you would think, well, that's a contradiction. but Culture of honesty. If it's a culture of honesty, then it's not, because nurses and doctors who feel safe in reporting errors instead of covering up their mistakes foster an environment of positive change. Right. So, okay, Megan, now that we talked about all this, I know I've kept everyone on the edge of their seat. But what was the sentence from a couple of days ago? I'm wondering the same exact thing. The sentencing was live streamed to the public. Now, this included those outside and in several overflow rooms in the courthouse. And I was able to watch some of this live. Megan, have you ever heard of a sentencing hearing going from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m.? I've heard of some being longer than others, but not that long, no. It was really long. I think it's because the gravity, this is a precedent-setting case you know, there's this is a very controversial case, and I think a lot of people were invested in it. So I was able to watch from about nine to one. I watched on and off. So the hearing began with a discussion of hundreds of letters and calls and emails and voicemails that have been received in support of Redonda. The judge is not, I mean, that might be swayed a little, but the judge is not really going to be considering that so much as, the, you know, what the jury decided and what the victim impact statements are and what Redonda says, yeah. you know, other factors will weigh more heavily. You're absolutely right. So, you know, a judge can't review all of that and take that into account because it's it wasn't being introduced as evidence by the defense. But I think it just goes to show, you know, th- what the public sentiment was. And there was testimony from mm-hmm. both sides, mostly character witnesses for the defense And the prosecution had a Tennessee Bureau of Investigation agent who was talking about the prosecution on an unrelated gun charge. I didn't really understand why that was even brought in. But most importantly, we heard from the victim's family. What did the victim's family have to say? Well, I think this maybe maybe we'll see this may have worked in Redonda's favor because the children of the woman who was the victim in this case, they said that they wouldn't have wanted jail time for Vaught. And, you know, that elicited tons of applause from the protesters outside the courthouse and the people in the overflow room. Um, They did mention, though, that, you know, they weren't happy because they said Redonda never apologized to the family. So when it was Redonda's turn to speak, the first thing she said is she looked at the victim's family and said, quote, saying I'm sorry doesn't seem like enough, but you deserve to hear that and know that I am very sorry for what happened. Well, you know, she couldn't say she was sorry before. The tri- while the trial was pending. So um, I'm sure she felt it all along, or at least I would guess she she did. Yeah. I suggest people watch this. She made a very heartfelt statement to the court when she, you know, she addressed the public. She addressed the judge, as defendants often do during sentencing. And she was very emotional. 
And she did talk about a lot of people were faulting her, saying that she was showing a lack of emotion. And she was telling people that she had been trained to keep her composure. That's part of nursing. So I think it was interesting Mm -hmm. to hear her really say, like, like, clearly she was distraught. And she was also saying that through her training, she's been told not to show emotion. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. And she said, quote, when Miss Murphy died, a part of me died with her. Powerful. So after an extremely long sentencing hearing, finally at around 4 p.m., the judge made her final remarks and she took about, I want to say it took a good 20 minutes for her to get to the point. So I was kind of on the edge of my seat. But at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. Redonda was sentenced to three years of probation. I kind of suspected that she was going to get probation, Amy. What about you? I was hoping for it. And I'm I'm not sure if listeners know about this, but have you ever heard of something called a diverted sentence? Because in Tennessee, and I thought this was great. I didn't I didn't know about this. But in Tennessee, a diverted sentence means that if Redonda meets the terms of her probation, then the charges can be wiped from her record. I've heard that in in some states. Yeah, I have. I don't know if I've heard that specific term. But yes, I definitely know that exists. And that is that's an appropriate measure. Rightly so, as the judge pointed out, Redonda's remorseful. She's no longer able to practice as a nurse. She does not pose a harm to the community. And there's no reason why she should serve her sentence in a prison. So I, I you know, I agree yeah, with that. I have to say, I, I understand. I think this is probably justice. So I guess that answers my question, Megan. I was just going to ask you, do you think the system got this one right? I think so. Yeah, I do. How about you? I mean, I don't know that it ever should have been a criminal justice issue to begin with. But since it was, then, yes, I do believe that three years probation with the possibility of wiping her record clean. That seems like a a pretty, a pretty fair sentence to me. Okay, thank you, Amy. All right. Well, um, I do look forward to seeing if and how this affects the healthcare field moving on, because although it is the sentence that people were hoping for, People are still not happy with the fact that she was charged to begin with. You know, Amy, I have to tell you, I can see both sides. Redonda, obviously, these were mistakes she made, although she made a series of mistakes and a person in her position should have known better than to make so many of them. So I understand both sides, uh, you know, which is why I was torn. Do I think this is, you know, do I think she should have been charged? I'm not sure, but I think this is justice in the end. I agree. And I appreciate you bringing us this case, obviously, that everyone has been, uh, you know, following so closely. Thanks for bringing us the resolution, too. All right. Before we head out today, let's take some questions from our patrons. Laura wants to know, do either of you ladies have recommendations on podcasts or documentaries? I have caught up on your material and I need more. Megan, I'm going to hand it over to you for documentaries. I'll uh, quickly say I've always loved Bear Brook. Over My Dead Body. Um, Of course, old school serial has always been a great one. Although I'm not as big into the documentaries as you are, Megan, I have to say When They See Us, although it's not a documentary, it's a film based on a true story. It's one of the best depictions I've seen of the Central Park Five. I would absolutely agree. Um, I just recently watched something I thought was so fascinating. It was called The Puppet Master on Netflix, and it was just a short three episode then I watched a case that I, I really didn't know enough about, uh, also I think on Netflix, about um, the entertainer Jimmy Seville, a British horror story. 
I highly recommend that one. It was it's very, very disturbing, but most crime documentaries are. So those two I just watched. And then I know that they just made a movie out of The Staircase Murders with Michael Peterson. So I'm curious to see because the movie got great reviews and Tony Collette's in it. So it's not a documentary, but it is a movie. And I am curious. I would say for now, that's what I've got going on. All right. Thanks for the question. Laura has a question that many people have been asking us recently. She wants to know, any information about Direct Appeal Season 2? Please, please, please. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Laura, we also are excited about this, but we are finishing the edits on Direct Appeal Season 2. So while we cannot promise a release date just yet, it is coming soon. Promise. What else do we have, Amy? All right. Sonnet wants to know, when you started podcasting, did you expect your shows to become so popular? Well, first of all, thank you for saying that. And second, for me, I had no clue. No, I didn't know. I didn't think so. That's so funny. I totally expected you to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wasn't sure. I really I really just wasn't sure. Like, you know, this hadn't been something that was in my kind of wheelhouse. So I just braced myself for, you know, that it would be a passion project. How about you? No, I didn't. That's just my personality, though. Yes, that's true. And I, I enjoyed us. I knew we were good. And I... Received some great feedback, you know, early on from family and friends. But I was like, who would ever want to hear me speak? You know, that's just, again, me. (laughs) (laughs) Turns out people do. I guess so. All right. And lastly, Jill wants to know. Well, Jill first says my favorite part of the podcast is learning about the criminological theories that could apply to different cases. Are there any resources, books or other media that you would recommend to someone interested in learning more? Well, I would. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I would say. um First of all, I am not sure if people are aware, but we have on our website, womenincrimepodcast.com, we do have a reading list, and then we also have a tab for resources. So I would definitely suggest starting there. And then as far as learning about individual theories, maybe keep an eye out on Patreon because we might be offering some more lectures in which we will teach you more about theory. That's true. Um, In the meantime, though, I can tell you this. If you really want, like, you know, there's a number of criminology, like, quick reader guides, like, almost like textbooks. So, like, I use Criminology, a Sociological Understanding from Stephen Barkin, which is a summary. But if you're, like, looking to really dig in, there are a lot of original sources that you can go to. One of my favorite books that impacted me in this field was Code of the Street by Elijah Anderson. He talks about strain theory, um, talks about strain theory, he talks about cultural theory, and he gives you, he does it through an, an ethnography. So it's pretty cool. If you want, you can also look at Delinquency and Opportunity by Lloyd Olin and Richard Clowen. Tells you all about how certain groups of young men become, you know, sort of delinquent or criminalized. Um, There's a book, you know, Social Learning Theory uh, by Ronald Akers. So these are all original sources if you like really want to geek out on this stuff. Yeah, those are the classics. Those are the books that we had to read early on in grad school. They're the ones we read. So, you know, if you're looking to. Yes. If you're looking for a textbook, though, that'll give you the quick uh, um, kind of, you know, the quick on all of it. Uh, All right. Well, I hope that we hope that gives you enough to keep you busy for a while. Thanks for the question. All right. Well, thank you all so much for those thoughtful questions. We look forward to hearing more and we look forward to seeing you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. 
You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash women in crime. Sources for today's episode include The Tennessean, NPR, The Independent, ABC News, USA Today, Fox 17 Nashville, healthaffairs.org, researchgate, insider.com, vox.com, PubMed Central, and the American Journal of Nursing. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.